and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here. It is episode 29. Wild to say that. It's been a busy year for us, uh, and it's end of year time. Uh, end of year 2019, we're putting this episode out. I'm not 100% certain. I'm actually recording this a week in advance. Um, it is just me, Travis, again, doing a solo episode. Ryan is in Detroit uh, doing some parental duties with uh, his wife. They're doing a family trip for the holidays, which is excellent, going to Detroit to see her family. So I'm solo recording this one. And yeah, it's the end of the year. I think I'm going to put this out maybe even on Christmas Day. My family uh, still celebrates Christmas, so perhaps in the morning after a big breakfast and some champagne, I will put this episode on the internet. I may also just push it out this weekend and then post and promote it later. So you'll be seeing this sometime, definitely during the holiday week or at least during Christmas week. And so we're glad you're with us. We're glad you're here at the end of the year. I thought then for a format, and if you've been listening to previous episodes with me flying solo, I've been experimenting with different review formats. This is a book review podcast, after all, as we make our way through the 80 Penguin Little Black Classics collection. Uh, I've been messing with the review format every week, just trying to be more experimental and try different things out and see what fits. Since it is the end of the year, I thought it appropriate to try a list format for this text. It's also extremely fitting because what we have here is a collection of essays. There are six of them by Michelle de Montaigne, which I looked up the pronunciation for about 30 seconds ago before I started recording. Just wanted to make sure I had that French name correct, and I probably didn't even pronounce it correctly. I'll have to call in my old roommate, Josh, uh, on a consultant on that one. He lived in France for a year and spoke French and spoken it for a long time. Uh, So I'm here with an essay collection by him, and as I mentioned, since it's the end of the year, I thought it would be thematically relevant or appropriate to do a list ranking system. This is something that's kind of taken over a lot of the culture websites, culture and criticism websites that I at least visit and, and venture to. It's popular at the end of every year to for writers and critics and reviewers to get together and collect. Usually they try and rank a top 10, something like that. And I know that it's become so contrived uh, that it's kind of, I don't know, it's almost eating its own tail in a way, where now people are making lists of the best list and it's all meta-commentary and meaningless and whatever. I, for one, will stand with sincerity behind the end of your list. I just think if you're like me, which maybe you are, you probably like a lot of forms of, of entertainment and art. You know, not only just fine art and museums, but TV. There's amazing TV now in the past decade. Like the best TV ever made has been made. Movies remain excellent. Books, hey, literature, that's still a thing. Very popular. Our podcast is dedicated to it. And so it's just hard to keep up. Like throughout the year, you know, you get busy for a few months. You don't see a few movies. I like having the moment at the end of the year just to kind of gather yourself and think, oh, you know what? I never did really watch a great show this year. Let me look up and see what people are ranking. Let me see what things stood out to the critics this year. I like the roundup nature of it. I find it very helpful. And I kind of just like to browse through. I also like to do the compare and contrast where it's like, okay, here's three critics I trust or three websites I trust. Let me evaluate them against each other, see where they overlap, and then that can be a good place to start if you're looking for, you know, something good to read or something good to watch or play. I mean, video games do this too. So I'm here for it, sincerely. And I'm bringing the list ranking format to this podcast 
today with Michel de Montaigne. Uh, if you didn't know that you wanted French philosophical and personal essays ranked, you've come to the right place because I'm going about to give you what you didn't even know you wanted or needed. As I mentioned, the collection here in front of me, the Little Black Classics Penguin set, only has six essays in it um, of extremely varying lengths. The longest one, I think, is like 30 pages, and there's some in here that are like two pages. So it's a, it's a pretty vast and hopefully in, in that way stylistically representative collection for De Montaigne, a writer who, before I read this, I had never encountered ever in any class that I can think of or any academic or personal reading situation. So I dove in for the first time. Hopefully you do too. Um, as always, I'll review it at the end and give it a rating. But for now, let's get to the list. Let's get to ranking. Coming in at number six, which is last place, I'm going to go from the least interesting to me, least compelling to the most, so I'll end with my favorite. Coming in at number six is an essay called Unpunishing Cowardice, which is basically what it sounds like. It's just a quick philosophical contemplation about why a society or a culture would punish people who like desert from the military, for example, who are labeled as, quote, cowards. I think it's... It, the thing about Montaigne in this essay is that I don't think he comes to anything profound. Now, this is kind of a common theme, and I actually want to address this right away. When I was reading these essays, I was struck by kind of some of them being a little simple, um, not in message or ideas, but in sort of the writing style. And I just thought it was very conversational almost and just sort of, I don't know, typical. Nothing was jumping off the page. And then I realized that it just reminded me of a lot of essay writing out in the world today. Any any place you can find interesting personal essays online, any websites or publications you trust, this writer, author sounds a lot like those people. Then I realized that he wrote these in the mid-1500s, which is mind-blowing, because his style, to, he sort of weaves in personal anecdotes, and then he'll drop in, you know, a random quote in Latin, and then he'll reference some historical thing, and then he'll jump back to, like, a time he was at a dinner party. It's all very playful, and it sort of intermingles arguments in, in complex and sort of interesting, very thoughtful ways, and, and can feel a little bit rambling. I don't think it ever really is that bad. But it's it's remarkable how much this style has held up. It's kind of become the de facto style for a lot of publications nowadays to just think we want our essay writers or our critics to be sort of interpersonal, but then also historical, but then also, you know, up to date on current cultural movements. And Montaigne is doing that. And so it in a way, it read very um, simply or, I don't know, almost plainly. But then I, you have to realize that this is like over 400 years old, which is pretty extremely wild. I can see why it stylistically it would be considered a revelation. Anyway, back to the Unpunishing Cowardice essay. Didn't wasn't moved by anything in here. He did have a touch of empathy for the for the people who, you know, desert or who are labeled as cowards. He says on 20, yet it is feared that disgrace by making men desperate may make them not merely estranged, but hostile, which is true. There's no easier way to put someone over the edge than to take a person teetering and then give them a push. And there's plenty of cultural examples of that. I don't think I need to go into that. But it is the least developed essay. And to me, the thing that just killed it, put the nail in the coffin. On the last page of the essay, he admits a huge assumption that just ruins the whole essay for me. He says on page 21, quote, uh, the act of cowardice, you know, if we're going to consider it he, the whole essay, he's essentially saying, you know, we shouldn't do this. This is a moral wrong. But then he says, we can do it, but the act of cowardice must be, quote, so flagrant as to surpass any norm. 
yeah, but whose norms, you know? Which cultures? Does, any civilization's norms? Do we compare against historical norms? Uh, do we? How do we decide those? To me, that's the interesting question. The essay itself, not that interesting. Coming in then at number five, the next essay up is on conscience. And that's, you know, like your, you know, your moral code conscience, not consciousness. I think that his view here is is a little generous. It's clear that he wrote this before we had understandings of what sociopathy or psychopathy would be in the you know psychological terminology. Um, he says on page nine, quote, to expect punishment is to suffer it and to merit it is to expect it. And I think that sometimes, honestly, this reminded me a bit a uh, personal connection of like growing up, my mom, um, hi mom, if you're listening, by the way, you might be was uh, pretty generous with the punishments. She didn't really have to punish us too harshly, even in our worst behavior that we did, we were punished. But I just remember the guilt and feeling of shame, uh, getting ready for the punishment always was enough, at least for me. I feel like we sort of self-punished, or at least, I don't know, I felt that way in a few key moments. There was one day I snuck out of the house, and the next day when I was caught, I just stayed in my room just trying to just embarrass, just waiting it out. And I feel like that is the punishment sometimes. I I kind of agree with that assertion. Uh, Again, a lot of insights in the essay. I enjoy the writing style. I think, again, it's a touch simplistic maybe in the things that it'll make you think about and consider. On page 10, he says, for example, conscience can fill us with fear, but she can also fill us with assurance and confidence. I mean, yeah, that any belief system that you maintain should do those things. It should make you, you know, feel hesitant to make sure that your beliefs are un should or to make sure your beliefs are the right ones. Like, should they be unwavering? Should I adapt them or change them? You know, and then also in moments of crisis, your your morals or ethical values or whatever should bolster you. And yeah, you know, hopefully you'd be confident in them. Otherwise, they probably should not be part of your conscience. The main, I would say, though, failure of this essay is it is a hard pivot in the middle, or actually towards the end, more like three-fourths of the way through, to doubting about the, like, efficacy and, like, the effectiveness of torture, which is a a fascinating topic in and of itself, but it kind of, I think the essay wants you to switch from micro to macro really fast and doesn't transition, doesn't build that in. That is sort of when I read quickly online about his famous uh, style and kind of the revolutionary style and essay writing he promoted. This is maybe what they were talking about, that he just went extremely rapidly from these sort of micro observations to a very macro political governmental issue and policy. And it just didn't work. It was shoddy. It just, your brain's not ready for it. All of a sudden there's a really long paragraph about torture. You know, I think I would just want more historical context in an essay like that. And so I don't think it really earned it. Both those two essays, those first two were pretty forgettable for me. I wouldn't recommend you seeking them out. This uh, moment here, where we're ranking number four, essay number four then, I think is where it becomes kind of, I'm not going to say must-read territory, but I think all four of these I truly enjoyed and found a lot of, um, if nothing else, entertainment in and interest intrigue. Number four, I've decided to put an essay called Fortune is Often Found in Reason's Train, which I believe it would mean, you know, like following reason, coming up behind reason. It definitely has the most intriguing examples in the collection. No surprise there. I've just to list a few of them. We've got uh, somebody getting lancered in the chest by like a by you know spear and then removing a tumor. There's a painter who's really agitated and can't and has like painter's block. There's an English queen who's really misled and sort of goes off on a sailing journey and gets lost. It's 
all entertainment. They're interesting. They're compelling. And he does tie them in really well to, you know, broader points that he's trying to make throughout the essay. I think the conclusion here is a little non-committal, or at least again, it's pretty broad stuff. So, you know, you're not going to come away with this having a revelation, um, at least if you're, you know, uh, at least decently read or decently thoughtful, as I assume all of our uh, listeners to be. Uh, On page 18, for example, he says, does not the following reveal a most explicit granting of her favor, that's Fortune's favor, as well as her goodness and singular piety? And I just think that he's basically saying, well, didn't it, it's a little circular, like, can't we tell that Fortune favored it because it went well? By definition, that's kind of true. It's not a very committed statement. It's not that intriguing. And again, it's a bit circular. So I don't think there's anything mind blowing there. The examples do more than make up for it. It's pretty intriguing stuff, though, how he gets to that point. I I would be remiss to not shout out the concluding image, the final lines of this essay. Just the grisly nature of it, it makes for intriguing, uh, some intriguing thinking. The imagery here is intense. Uh, He concludes, there's this statue to fortune. This is sort of how he depicts what fortune can be or what fortunate people are, what they, who they can look like. He's describing two men who kill each other at the same time in a duel. And he says, quote, at the end, allowing their bodies to remain nobly entwined together, wound against wound, lovingly soaking up each other's lifeblood, which perhaps if you're uh, viewing certain things as noble and certain things not, maybe that kind of martial end, you know, you and your enemy just bleeding out together, maybe that's fitting. It certainly is an image that belongs in a number of war movies I've seen, you know, sort of the noble enemy pitted against the noble enemy and you know, different sides of a conflict, but the same heart, the same honor, etc. It feels like a war cliche almost at this point. But in 1550 or so, who knows, probably not as much. And it's just an intense image that that is what he would believe fortune to be very telling about his own views. All right, we're in the back half, the, I guess you could say front half of the essays, since these are the top three now. I think these three are where it finally gets into must-read territory. Um, The previous one, number four, probably not as much, but these final three really I found fascinating and thought overall they're pretty intriguing and pretty strong. Number three, the essay is called On the Vanity of Words, which for a person whose life was at least partially dedicated to like revolutionizing essays in France and being part of a French renaissance of literature, that's a, you know, you're coming out strong with that title. You're certainly putting, um, putting some intense opinions out there. I think in this one, the anecdotes he uses, or not anecdotes, sorry, the allusions he uses in the history, probably the most accessible. He talks a lot about Athens and Sparta, which are two Greek, you know, civilizations that I think most people, if, if you didn't learn about them in school or remember the bullet points, that's probably the easiest Google Wikipedia search for sure. A lot of the other figures he dis- um, discusses are kind of niche French figures. Um, I'm sure not niche to people uh, growing up in France, but to an American reader such as myself, I definitely had to look up a few names. And I think it, it's a lesson, and more importantly than the historical examples, that's nice. But I think really this is probably the one that connected best to 2019, except for the next essay, which is about death, which is a an omnipresent uh, or an omnipresent omnirelevant topic, a, a always uh, evergreen topic. But the pernicious and kind of manipulative side of rhetoric, I don't think I need to do any sermonizing about 2019 or political climate of the last decade or yada yada. And I think even if you're tangentially like politically active, you're aware of 
rhetoric and the way politicians use or don't use it or abuse it. There's like a billion debates every year at this point, it feels like, or it just feels like a constant in the, in our lives and in the culture. And, you know, the fact that he had really astute observations about this, I would say, again, maybe more towards the negative or pessimistic side uh, is impressive. It's, you know, there's insights here worth thinking about. On 23, he goes in and says, Whereas rhetoricians pride themselves on deceiving not our eyes, but our judgment, bastardizing and corrupting things in their very essence, taking the very truths, this is me now, but taking, you know, the truths of the world and twisting them to their purposes. These are things like, you know, you see it, you double speak, you know, um, or speaking passively or just refusing to answer or just repeating questions. It's, you know, the tactics are simple. But they can be weirdly, sadly effective. Um, There's a claim here that I also thought was interesting. He says that rhetoric is, quote, a means like medicine to only be used when a state is sick or when states are sick. To me, that's way too extreme, though I will grant strong state morality tests. You know, I'm thinking wars, civil rights movements, like when, when a state is really pushed and its leadership is pushed to declare a sort of... uh, civil or rights issue to be to come to the forefront and to decide make a determination actually you know when big social action is happening or, or wars often uh, can be well not often but they can be resultant from this civil war in america is a great example of that i think they generate the most memorable pieces of rhetoric that i think is undeniable i don't think it's unhealthy for a for a politician or for anyone really to practice good rhetoric and and good rhetorical strategy outside of those conditions. But I just think those conditions by the necessity of the movements and the intensity and importance of the moment, they draw that kind of, they draw the speakers out and they draw the the stronger um, writing out that I would agree with. This essay is also a good moment to interject that this, this guy, uh, De Montaigne seems like a pretty clear elitist, though I did almost no research about his background or didn't even Google or Wikipedia much except for how to pronounce his name. Uh, He says on 24, he's a very harsh view of the common man and woman. He says on 24, for that animal stupidity and levity which are found in the masses, making them apt to be manipulated and swayed through the ears by those sweet, harmonious sounds without succeeding in weighing the truth of anything by force of reason. Frankly, I might just let that quote sit. I don't know if I need to comment on it. I think it's a pretty divisive quote, and I would disagree with a lot of it, though the mob mentality is frightening. And there are social pressures in our day and age that I think could be pressed up against that quote and could be uh, thought about in a, in a deep and interesting way. Again, to me, the connection, I'll, I'll leave that to you, the listener, but it's there. Finally, I, it would be wrong of me, morally wrong, to not end a discussion of this essay without just quickly putting up a defense of rhetoric and of the craft of creating writing or speech, since, I mean, podcasting is kind of that, though a little freewheeling. Near the end of this essay, he kind of concludes by saying, quote, When you hear grammatical terms, such as metomony, metaphor, and allegory, do they not seem to refer to some rare exotic tongue? Yet they are categories which apply to the chatter of your chambermaid. That's the beauty, man. That's the beauty. 
is that though you might not know the definition or the term, we're categorizing what makes speech intriguing. It's what makes the chambermaid's chatter fascinating and fun. It's it's just a way of categorizing and under, deepening understanding, trying to comprehend what works and what makes speech compelling. I think it, it can be true in conversation. It can be true in academia and when you study things that are, you know, quote unquote, academic formal texts, whatever. But I think that's the beauty of it. Those terms, yeah, people might not remember what uh, metaphor and allegory are from school, but it, it would be, I think, more foolish to just ignore them and think, eh, some things make rhetoric good. Who knows what they are? We, no point in understanding. I think that's far more foolish. So that's my final strong thoughts on that essay. Moving to number two, then. This one was by far is, uh, sorry, by far the longest. It is called To Philosophize is to Learn How to Die, probably one of the simpler, truer statements about philosophy. It's one of the issues that a philosopher worth his or her salt must contend with at some point in their philosophy. Uh, Otherwise, it's kind of a failed philosophy in my view. And it's 25 pages. It's the longest essay by four or five times. I think he comes across as kind of monk-like. Um, though I, I hopefully I'm not saying that in too much of a stereotype way, but there's a definite detachment to to being obsessed with the earthly life, and there's a definite detachment to being obsessed with possessions or experiences. He says on 36, quote, I deal myself the best hand I can, and then I accept it, which I think, yeah, is the, the simplest sort of way of getting on in your day, which is I did my best, and then whatever comes may come. I think he does see risk in developing too much love. He calls them the voluptuous pleasures, but you could think of these as the carnal pleasures, I think. On 38, he says, Let us never be carried away by pleasure so strongly that we fail to recall occasionally how many are the ways in which that joy of ours is subject to death, or how many are the fashions in which death threatens to snatch it away which definitely sounds grim and maybe even fatalistic, and I, those accusations probably could be leveraged against him. I don't think, though, those words are, are fully fitting. There's some celebratory nature in here, and there's some kind of or celebratory tone in here. Though overall, yeah, he's, he definitely thinks you have to reckon with passing uh, as it's the one certainty in your life. He does have some practical insights in here also. He does say that, you know, age comes very gradually for people who are lucky enough to have it, and so you have to, your, your mind throughout your aging should always be aware that there's not going to be a tipping point, probably, that instead you'll wake up, and if you haven't prepared for the gradual decline, that's when the shock will set in, and that you should avoid that by contemplating it. On 45, he says, Nature leads us by the hand, down a gentle slope. Little by little, step by step, she engulfs us in that pitiful state and breaks us in so that we feel no jolt when youth dies in us. And despite the language there, the youth dying, calling it a pitiful state, I find some comfort in this in the little slope that that's the process that most people have the the luck and fortune to enjoy. Uh, that's the kind of path of their lives. I think the falling off a cliff, that feeling of that feeling of falling in this metaphor would be far worse. You know, I know some people say, "Give me a swift death," but I don't know. There's there's some if you can reckon with it. There's dignity to a to a little by little, step by step, gentle slope. I'm gonna give one more quote from this essay since it presents, I think, a nice philosophical conundrum and maybe even just a summary of his entire view in this um, Learning How to Die essay. He says on 49, If you have profited from life, you have had your fill, go away satisfied. 
But if you have never learned how to use life, if life is useless to you, what does it matter if you've lost it? What do you still want it for? Which is an excellent, I think, summative moment in the essay. And if you can answer that question one way or the other, I think that he believes that is your answer. And I think that's as close to a complete statement as he gets there. Okay, and finally, we arrive at the number one essay in my ranking, my Michel de Montaigne essay rankings 2019, and it is the titular essay. It is how we weep and laugh at the same thing. To me, it's the distillation of his style into its best, probably most concise form. It definitely takes a simple premise, which is basically, hey, how come people at times can feel two emotions? Or how come humans have conflicting emotions to the same event? And then it kind of runs them through historical examples and philosophical premises. And so in that way, it is kind of the purest form of his style. If you think either from listening to this or from something else that you might want to try some of the essays, this to me would be the one to try and find first because it's not going to require that much reading time. And I think it will give you the best sense of just him as a writer. I think it does have also his least flattering moment. He talks about on page four railing at his manservant, which could just be a total, you know, class thing in France at the time, a social context thing. I, again, did almost no background Googling, but I'm assuming he was of the aristocracy or something. Um, but it also does include some self effacement, too. He says, he describes how if he were to punish himself every day, he would, quote, only be heard growling to myself against myself, you, you silly shit. And so, I mean, if that's not, if that's not relatable, then I don't know what is. The manservant thing, definitely not. The you silly shit thing, I think we've all been there, you know? You take a wrong turn, you drop the dish you just cooked, you forget to file your taxes on time, you know, the the examples are, are broad and small. I also found, uh, of all the classical sources he draws from, and there were a lot, I didn't pull many quotes of those, um, because I'll let you grapple with them if you decide to read. I don't, I don't want to run through everything, after all. Uh, but he does quote a lot of things in Latin, and then it's translated. It had my favorite piece of, of sort of ancient or classical wisdom on page six. It says, quote, The mind is swifter than anything which the nature of our eyes allows them to see. And I think that is his way of sort of welcoming in the idea that your brain wants to process a lot of things before you can even truly comprehend that they've happened, that you're sort of racing ahead and that that can create conflicting emotions, that you're maybe even trying to keep up appearances, but your brain is wanting to process something way in advance or is sort of running through multiple scenarios before you know how to express that or show it. And I think, yeah, that's an excellent quote. I didn't even write down who he pulled that from, so that's my fault. I should give proper attribution. But anyway, that was probably my favorite of the classical quotes. And I think maybe his view here is the one I agreed with the most, though I think his conclusion here is dangerous when applied to at the level of civilization or society. But he seems to think that humans cannot be comprehended as a quote on page six, continuous whole, that you cannot take one human life or one human story and say, this is the through line. I, I found the thread. I think the, there's a density to human experience that he admires, or if not admires, acknowledges and says, you, you basically cannot try and perceive people that way. And if you do, then you're simplifying things and you're ignoring the conflicting complexity at the center of it. And again, I, I don't think on a society level, I'd find that compelling, but in a individual human nature level, I think it's a pretty good point. I think it's the most incisive essay, but also in a fitting way for an essay about infinite sides, which is an expression he uses, people have infinite sides. 
it doesn't like resoundingly pound out a, an answer. I think it offers a couple of glimpses at some philosophical truth and then sort of backs away. So I think for all of those accomplishments, uh, it was an excellent essay and I would definitely recommend reading it. And it's our number one ranking. Woo. Going to end 2019 with that number one pick. The essay again was called how to, how to, not how to, how we weep and laugh at the same thing. And with that, congratulations to you, listener. You've made it to the end. Those are in the little black classics collection anyway. The top six Michelle de Montaigne essay rankings, definitive edition for the Brothers Book Book Club podcast. Thanks for indulging me in this one, and thanks for putting up with me if you haven't been able to tell. I've been a little bit sick this week with a cold, so hopefully I don't sound too radically different. This one will be a fun editing burden for me. Looking forward to this one. There's a lot of coughs and sniffles to cut out in the post-production, so a little behind the scenes for you. Next week, we have episode 30 coming up. It will be on something called The Terrors of the Night, which to me has been an absolute terror to, to read it. I'm just going to give a full preview of that. Uh, I'm about 20 pages in and am not enjoying it in any way. Well, that's almost never true. Uh, there's snippets that I've enjoyed, but not much. I'll say that. But we'll forge ahead and uh, we'll look forward to 2020 and episodes in 2020 with pride. Two uh, bits of business before we wrap this up here. I just realized I never rated the uh, Michelle de Montaigne collection. It's a two, folks, which on our rating system, a one, two, or a three, a two means it's a qualified recommendation. To me, if you seek out those first like number one and number two ranked essays and they intrigue you, you like the writing style, you like the voice, you like the ideas, then I'd say keep going and pursue more. I think number one is definitely worth checking out. It will take 15 minutes maybe of your time. So apologies, I almost forgot to rank that. I'm not even going to re-edit and put that in earlier. I'm just going to leave it here. Second piece of business before we head on out is just the fact that we almost made it to 30 episodes this year. I think it's a accomplishment I'm proud of and I'm you know very happy that my brother and I've gotten to spend so much time together recording these uh, I know he'll be back in 2020 unsure when he's still really busy being a being a father which is always number one and he's excited to get back and he's been reading a lot of the books so if you've been missing him as you know you well should he will be back in 2020 we have left ourselves I think exactly 51 books to go before we finish which and my math isn't great anymore but it sounds like if we keep on the one-a-week one pace, we will finish in 2020, which is kind of astounding to say out loud, almost a bit intimidating. But I think that's the goal. We're going to come back and redouble our efforts and our passion, and we're going to keep reading and trudging ahead. We hope you join us in the new year, 2020, and we will finish the Little Black Classics next year. We look forward to having you with us, and have a great and happy holiday. We will see you between the classics. <laughs> <laughs>